0: Well, we have been following Matthew's account of Jesus from the beginning, um, and now as we come towards the end, Matthew really slows down. We've, we've been kind of in slow motion for the last few weeks, trying to keep pace with Matthew as he's told us about Jesus' arrest and his trials, the last time we saw him mocked and crucified, and today we're picking up when Jesus has been there on the cross for about three hours. So what do we make of it? Um, scientists have been doing something interesting. Bear with me. Super. Scientists have still been doing it. They've been building a super camera, apparently, um, a, a camera in order to take the highest resolution single shot photo. Um, 3,200 megapixels is this photo. Um, It means that you could take a photo of a golf ball 15 miles away and see it. Obviously not 15 miles across that way because you wouldn't see that far. You'd have to go up, I guess, to do that. Um, But that's what they do. So these these scientists, they built um, this camera. They wanted to take some test photos. So what subject did they use for their test photos with this great big camera? Broccoli. That's what they did. Now, they use their super camera to take pictures of vegetables like any old Instagram user. Um, but the thing is, the higher the resolution the picture, the more detail you get. This passage we have before is, is a high-resolution passage. Uh, the subject that is displayed to us is the, it's the highest resolution image in all the world of this subject. And the subject in this picture shows most clearly in all creation what love is. But having a high-resolution picture um, is fine. It can be as clear as day, um, but it doesn't mean that it is seen. So as we work our way through this passage, the question we need to be asking is, what do I see? Because it's the seeing that will make all of the difference. So come with me. Come with me to this place called Golgotha. These Roman soldiers tending to the crosses, The crowd milling around. The sun has moved up to its midday high. And then the first thing that we see in this passage is darkness. Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Darkness right in the middle of the day. It's not a natural thing. There there is something that is happening in this darkness and we must look into it for a moment. What darkness does is it hides things. There is a happening here that is hidden from us. And perhaps there's a sense in which we ought to thank God for that hiddenness. Because what we do know of this darkness is it's quite hard for us to cope with. And Matthew's already told us about darkness. Uh, right towards the beginning, when Jesus first burst onto the scene in Matthew chapter 4, he tells us the significance of Jesus' coming using words from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he quotes the prophet who said, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The prophet Isaiah had told how people had spurned their maker, they'd rejected the God who who made them, they'd refused his ways, they'd refused his word, they'd ruined his world, and the result is that God's anger is against them. God's righteous anger, Isaiah said, has been kindled and it is not turned away. So just before the words that Matthew quotes, Isaiah says the future of such people Is only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That wasn't just the case for the people of Isaiah's time. That's how Jesus spoke. A number of times Jesus spoke about those who have sinned against God, how they will be thrown into the outer darkness. This darkness is what it is to face the anger of God against sin. Jesus describes that, that facing the anger of God like this in Matthew 25. He says it is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, eternal punishment. And so I want to tell you about this darkness. Uh, I, I know for some of us it is perhaps almost unbearable to hear it. Uh, I, I want to tell you about this darkness and I know it's not politically correct. I know that it's one of the first things that people remove when they twist the Bible to suit what their itching ears want to hear. So often I've seen that it is talk of this darkness that makes people turn their backs on the church. But I want to tell you about this darkness because as best I can, I want to show you how wonderful a saviour Jesus Christ is. This darkness is judgment. It is the anger of the holy God against sin, the settled awful, pouring out of God's wrath. And it is what every one of us deserves. The Bible says we have all sinned, and our sin must meet the judgment of God, and the verdict will be guilty, and the punishment, the sentence, will be eternal torment in the place of hell. This darkness is the shadow of death the swallowing up of life into undying death. Dying in this life is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Dying is not the end. Dying is the door. And after death comes judgment. And so from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. It's not natural. It is the storm of God's anger against sin. And in all that darkness, Jesus is hanging on the cross. What's happening to him? The second thing we see in our passage is dereliction. See, after these three hours of darkness, there's a cry that splits the air. And we hear Jesus' response as he speaks in his native Aramaic. And he cries out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that cry reveals to us where the weight of the darkness has landed. The judgment of God against sin has fallen and its target was this man on this cross. Now the words Jesus speaks come from Psalm 22. And the words express two things. The first thing, this is a cry of faithfulness. Jesus says, my God, my God, he is trusting God, he is always faithful, he's never failing, it's Jesus Christ. And the faithfulness of Jesus makes the second part of the cry so bewildering. Because as we say, this darkness depicts judgment upon sin, the cry locates the judgment falling on this man, but this man is not a sinner, This man has been tested and tried and prodded and uh, and provoked in all kinds of ways. But all that has come out of him is goodness. Now there is in this man not even the slightest stain of sin. But his cry is a cry of abandonment. A grief like no other. See, in in this darkness as the weight of a world of sin is put upon the shoulders of Jesus and that sin draws to his perfect soul the full force of eternal anger. In that darkness, the Lord Jesus experiences the hatred of God. He who knew only the delight of God now knew that delight turned away. He who had always lived in the warmest beam of heaven's love now knew that light had turned to darkness. This was that moment that he dreaded in the garden when he prayed and when he wept and when he sweated those those drops of blood. This was that moment that he dreaded, the moment of being forsaken. And perhaps in that cry, there is more darkness than in the three hours. There's a great mystery in this cry, a mystery we can only look into the edge of. See, here we have Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. And in that moment, God was not broken. The Trinity is not torn apart here. We shouldn't ever think that. The the Trinity, God the Father, the Son and the Spirit, by definition, is unbreakable. God is unity. God is indivisible in three inseparable persons. He's not made up of three parts that you have to add together to get a whole. All the persons of God, Father, Son and Spirit, are God possessing the same divine essence. The Son of God was not forsaken by the Father. That's not possible. But what is happening in these moments is that that God the Son, who at the moment of the incarnation had added to himself a human nature, so that at the conception of Jesus Christ, the one who has always been fully God, now became fully man, meant See, God the Son as God could not go to the cross. God is God. God cannot suffer. He cannot bleed. He cannot die. God the Son as God could not be forsaken. That's nonsense. But he added to himself a human nature. Become like us in every single way. Taking on a human body and a human mind and a human soul. Everything that made us human, he became every part of us. And so that God God the Son as man could suffer and bleed and die. God the Son as man could be forsaken. You see, this suffering of Christ is human suffering. It had to be human suffering. He had to be like us to save us. It was human suffering that was needed to pay the price for human sin. And so God the Son suffered abandonment in his human nature. Now we will never... Never fathom the depth of the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that forsaking cut deeper into his soul than the whip had cut into his back or the thorns were cutting into his brow. Here the human soul of the Lord Jesus is crushed. And here he throws out the question into the darkness, why? Why have you forsaken me. Is there an answer? No, in some ways it's a question that just expresses the the bewildered agony. And and yet Matthew tells us that Jesus cries this with a loud voice. And, And as we read on and we come to verse 50, we see that Jesus again cries in a loud voice. There's a drawing of the cries together. But before we get to the second cry, there's something else. Now, Jesus has cried out, Eli, Eli. And the crowds think he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. One of them runs and gets some, some sour vinegar, some wine vinegar. Um, and, and the rest say, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And so think then on this crowd as they look upon this Jesus. What did a crowd see on the cross? They they see on the cross there is a man dying helplessly and hopelessly dying. They they see a man crying out hopelessly for rescue. A last gasp prayer to be saved. And they stand back and say, let's see, let's see if heaven's helper will take pity on this miserable wretch. What they see as they look on Jesus on the cross is only a victim. And they are so very mistaken. Because there is a second cry that rings out. There is a a second loud voice. And the third thing that we see in this passage, after the darkness and the dereliction, the third thing we see is doing. Verse 50 is perhaps the most startling verse in this passage. Look with me. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit crucifixion is a very slow way to die it's designed to gradually draw away the life drop by drop drip by drip until life fades away but the moment of Jesus's death is not like that there is a loud cry it's not a fading it's not life drained the moment of his death is he gave up his spirit he released his spirit that's not how death was described in these times This death of the Lord Jesus is his doing. You you see that? His life is not being taken. It's being given. He was not a helpless victim crying for Elijah to save him. We shouldn't shouldn't think that. We we should never let our saviour be diminished by thoughts that he was a pitiful, helpless victim. He was not a victim. He was a willing gift. He was the gift giving himself. He released his spirit. This is his doing. You see, not long before this, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus spoke of his mission to the world like this. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So at this moment, shrouded by the abyss of his alienation from his father, under the taunts of the onlookers, this was the moment when he he did what he came to do. He gave his life. Now consider at verse 50, everything that stood against Jesus. A guy called Hugh Martin, writing at the end of the 19th century, says that it was earth and hell and heaven all against him. Earth's rulers and her rabble had had conspired to kill him. Natural resources, the the wood of the cross, the metal of the nails, the, the, the thorns of the crown, the sun not shining. And then Martin writes... Hell's utmost force and fury gathered against him. Heaven's sword devouring him and heaven's God forsaking him. Earth and hell and heaven thus in conspiring action against him unto the uttermost of heaven's extremist justice and earth and hell's extremist injustice. All that was against him. And yet he was not overcome. He did not yield. He would not die until he gave himself into death. All of it was his doing. This is what he did. And Martin writes, his dying was his grandest doing. And we stand back and we should marvel at the Savior and and urge our hearts to adore, to adore this throne of power cut of rough wood and stained with the crimson of his blood. This is his victory chariot. Why have you forsaken me? What's the reason? Well, here's the reason. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And Matthew's careful to show us the immediate effects of the gift. Do you see that? If you look at verses 51 to 53, the immediate result of this gift. In, in these verses, the same word is used for the tearing of the curtain and the splitting of the rocks. That There is a, a double smashing that results of Jesus' death. What, what happens? Well, you know when you put a key into a lock. In fact, the the container here that we get our stuff out has two locks and two keys. And I, I usually get them the wrong way around. But when you've got the right key into the right lock and you apply the pressure, you feel the lock move and you hear the clunk of the bolt as the door swings open. What happens? Verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple was a locked door. It separated the holy place from the most holy place. Only one time a year, only one person was allowed to enter. See, this was the the one location in all the earth that represented the presence of the holy God. God, who is the reason for all existence. God who puts the the stars into place. God who is the, the fountain of all life and all goodness and all happiness. God who holds everything together God who is most needed, the God for whom we were made, the God without whom we will only ever be, lost and languishing and empty and broken. The one place on earth that represented being with him is the most holy place and the curtain says you cannot go there. Why? It's because of our sin. Sin in the presence of holiness is consumed. You can't survive that goodness. So this curtain represents whole of human history the whole predicament of humanity that we are apart from the God without whom we cannot do or even worse it's our sin that puts this God not only apart from us but against us that there is no way to God there is only a fearful expectation of his judgment we we get born on the outside and we carry out all of our lives on the wrong side of the door of life the door is locked and then at this moment of Jesus' grandest doing, when he gave his life, the key is put into the lock and it's turned and the bolt clunks open. And the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. It is it smashed open. Because all of that darkness, the pouring out of God's wrath against sin, all of hell itself was focused on the sin bearer. And he gave himself into it, paying the ransom price. And the result is immediate. The door that has shut us away from God is open. The barrier that put us on the outside is smashed. The punishment that is deserved by our sin is fully answered in the dying of the Christ. And so there is nothing. There is nothing now in all of creation, nothing possible, nothing that we conceive or nothing that is beyond our conception that can hold sinners away from the presence of the Holy God. There is nothing except unbelief. except unbelief. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross to make us feel better about ourselves. He didn't die on the cross to add some kind of minor improvements to our lives. He didn't die to lift our self-esteem. Jesus died on the cross to save us from the eternal wrath of God poured out on us in hell. That's why... That's why the light that shines into the darkness went himself into that darkness for us. And when he had done it, he had opened the door up to eternal bliss, up to eternal life in the happiness of God. There is a double smashing here. There is a double smashing. First, the barrier to God is smashed down and opened up the way to life. And the second smashing, it says the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of the holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's bizarre, isn't it? It raises a load of questions that aren't answered for us. But the point, the point is that Jesus had died. And the immediate effect of Jesus' dying is that death loses its grip. Life bursts from the graves. Death that had held its sway since the beginning. Every generation held down as slaves to death. And we know it, don't we? We know how death is not an option. Death comes to all. But here the effect of Jesus' dying is that the power of death is broken. Death cannot hold its victims. Why? 1 Corinthians 15. It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In that darkness, everything that our sin deserved was loaded onto Jesus. Everything. Our sin deserves eternal punishment. That was what he suffered. Our sin deserves that we are thrown into death and endure the torment of undying destruction with the door locked and the key thrown away. But Christ went there for us and he took that for us and he did it for us. It wasn't done to him. His dying was his grandest doing. And when it was done, he smashed open the door. Christ's death is the key that goes into the lock of death itself, and it fits perfectly, and the key is turned, and the bolts open wide. The rock split, the grave releases its prey, death is smashed open. This is what Jesus did. This is his grandest doing. And the effect of it is to bring you to unspeakable good. It's to lift you from death to life. It is to move you from hell to heaven, is to get you from lost to found, from out to in, from now to forever in the imperishable bliss of Almighty God. Why? Why did He do all that? The subject of this picture is love. Now, what is love? We, we speak about love in so many ways, so many confused and contradictory ways. We mold our understanding of love to ways that we we feel and we think, but the Bible says this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus said there is greater love no one has than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This doing is a doing that originated in the love of God. This doing isn't causing God's love. God doesn't love because Jesus died. This doing comes from the love. It's been created by the love. God loves, and so God came. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past um, determined that this would be how their love would be seen as the Father sends his Son, as the Son comes and dies, and as the Spirit takes what is purchased and applies it to everyone who would believe. It's love in that darkness and in that dereliction and in the doing it is love in the tearing of the curtain and the smashing of that sin-built barrier and the smashing of death's vice grip, life bursting out. It's love's work. It's love's work to bring sinners to the holy God. It's love's work to bring the unworthy and the wretched and the undeserving and the lost and to bring all sorts of people from all kinds of places into all the glory of heaven. It's love's work. There's no love like this love. No love like it. This is the highest resolution image of love in all eternity. And in a hundred thousand years from now, all who trust Jesus in this life will gather around him in that life and we will not run out of wonder at the scars on his hands and in his side as we worship around the throne of the Lamb who was slain. It's love. But having a high resolution image is not enough. It can be as clear as day. It doesn't matter unless it's seen. Now, what do you see as you consider these things? So there are a number of responses to these things in our passage. We've got the women who are watching and waiting. We've got Joseph of Arimathea caring for the body. We've got the religious leaders who continue in their unbelief. But as we think about what we see, let's just focus on two seeings in this passage. First of all, there are some who see only a victim and nothing more. The crowd. The crowd who mishear Jesus' cry, they think he's shouting for Elijah to come and rescue him. The the, the crowd look and they see a victim, only a victim begging to be saved. A victim helplessly caught, as it were, in the hand of fate. Uh, And there are some today who still see nothing more than that. And the scene is heart-wrenching. It'd be a hard heart not to be moved by what happened. But the crowd misheard Jesus. And maybe we still miss here. Maybe we think it was just a tragedy. Maybe some lessons we can draw, but at the end of the day, we pity the Lord Jesus on the cross. Nothing more. And and if that's how we see things, then I guess Jesus would, well, he would sit on the periphery of our lives. If that's how we see things, we're not going to rush to Jesus in times of trouble. We'll try to sort it out ourselves. If that's how we see things, we're not going to be eager to search the scriptures to know him better. If that's how we see things, our prayers will be, will be superficial and distracted. And the governing passion of our life will not be Jesus Christ. It will not be his name. If that's how we see Jesus, we're not going to make much of him. Though no, Through the 19th and 20th century, the whole kind of liberal movement of theology falls at this point. Because it says the death of Christ did nothing. And the Bible answers and says, no, his death does everything. You see, there are some who see him as victim and only as victim, but there are others who see more. They see him as a victor. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. These professional executioners knew what death was like. Dying was their job and this was not what dying usually looked like. These are the soldiers who had mocked Jesus, flogged him, made fun of him and then they executed him. But when they saw what happened and felt the earth shake and they heard the cry and they saw him breathe his last, they felt no pity for him. That They saw that this was no victim and so they were terrified. They were shaken intensely to the core. Why? Surely he was the son of God. What did they mean by that? Maybe they spoke better than they knew. But but it was this moment that that turned the religious leaders in their trial. As they asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus said, yes. And they said, it's blasphemy. And they handed him over to death. But these soldiers, they agree with Jesus. He is the Son of God. Matthew began by telling us about the birth of Jesus. He said, this baby will be called Emmanuel, who be called God with us because that's who he is. And when he was baptized, God the Father called from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. And when he was transfigured on the mountain, God the Father cried from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. And now this beloved son has done his greatest doing, given his life as a ransom for many, and the soldiers shake in terror because on that cross is the son of God. They don't see a man to be pitied. They see a God to be worshipped. That's their terror, the terror of being in the presence of the holy God. Is that how you see it? You see this love, this love like no other, this grandest of doing, does it shake you like the soldiers? What do you see? Perhaps we're persuaded that it ought to shake us, or to shake our lives to be built on him. It ought to shake away our slowness to think on him. It ought to heat up our cold affection. It ought to stir our reluctance to live every moment in obedient worship to such a savior. Perhaps we are persuaded that this love demands my soul and my life and my all. But then we look at the week that's just gone. And we look at the week that lies ahead. And we're so quickly disappointed by our response you know what I mean by that? How we we ought to be shouting from the rooftops, but we can barely whisper it in the quiet of our own hearts. We ought to be brimming with confidence, but but we're not. We ought to be rushing to Jesus, but at, at best, at best, we just dawdle. Well, you know, sometimes when a picture is put in front of us, we need to let our eyes rest a while for it to come into focus. Perhaps that's what we need then, to... Let this picture, these, this marvelous Jesus, this wonderful, wonderful Savior, let your eyes rest a while. Let, let these things come into focus. Seek for your heart, your life to align with these things. Seek for that trembling worship at the throne of the Lamb. That's what we're going to do now as we continue in our service. Paul is going to lead us as we come to the table, as we come Uh, To what our Saviour told us to do, what our Saviour prepared for us to do to help fix our gaze on him.